Welcome to episode number 65 of Off the Shelf. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Till Armageddon, no shalom, no shalom. Then the father hen will call his chickens home. The wise men will bow down before the throne. And at his feet, they'll cast their golden crowns. Before we get into part two of our interview with Alicia Moreno, I want to comment on an issue that is currently front and center with virtually every message follower. The election of Kamala Harris as Vice President of the United States and the fact that she wore a purple dress at her inauguration. William Branham made a number of predictions and prophecies. Based on our research, William Branham's prophecies can be classified into three categories. First, those that are clearly false. Second, those that are so vague that they will almost certainly be fulfilled in some way. And third, prophecies that are based on scripture, common scientific knowledge, and or common sense. In 1955, William Branham stated that a woman would become a great ruler in the United States. She would either be a president or something on that order. In 1956, he stated that a woman would be president before the U.S. was annihilated. He stated that the prophecy was written down. He also stated on various occasions that it might be the Catholic Church. In 1963, he stated it was not actually a woman, but a church. He mentioned this prophecy approximately 14 times in the 10 years prior to his death in 1965. Now, in looking at this prophecy, we need to ask a couple of questions. Is this a prophecy that is sufficiently vague that it will almost certainly be fulfilled? The details of this prophecy certainly seem intentionally vague. The woman is a president or a vice president or a dictator or the Catholic Church or any other thing that might symbolically be portrayed as a powerful woman. Now, women in the United States obtained the legal right to vote nationally in 1920. William Branham stated he received this prophecy in 1933. Given the way history was moving, it was not hard to believe in 1933 that a woman would eventually be president, or at least vice president, at some time in the future, even if that might be 100 years from that time. If the prophecies were actually made in 1933, and there is some doubt about that, then to see a woman as vice president some 87 years later is certainly not an astounding prophecy. As a result, it's not unreasonable to conclude that this prophecy qualifies as being sufficiently vague as to almost certainly be fulfilled at some time. But what about the fact that Kamala Harris was wearing purple? Isn't this a clear indication of a non-vague prophecy? In a sermon on December the 7th, 1960, William Branham quotes Revelation 17:4, And the woman was arrayed in purple. 
And then he says, the beast was scarlet, but the woman was arrayed in purple. So if he thought that the woman in his vision was the Catholic Church, and the Bible says she was wearing purple, then it is not surprising for William Brown to say that in his vision, the woman was wearing purple. What is surprising is that he never referred to the powerful woman wearing purple at any time prior to 1960. It was only later, after he quoted Revelation 17.4 in a sermon, that he mentions her wearing purple. So, I believe that this is an example of the third category of prophecies that William Branham made. It is a prophecy which he takes from Scripture. I think it is important to note that message followers are desperate to find a valid prophecy that William Branham made. Our highest traffic in the past five years on our website was in early November 2016 when Hillary Clinton vied against Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. Psychologists have proved that where prophecies are made by religious leaders and they fail, their followers become more fervent in their beliefs and will go on to believe things that normal people just shake their heads at. This is very hard for people outside the message to understand, but this is what is happening in the message. The followers of William Branham are sadly becoming more and more like a cult. But say this is a valid prophecy. Does it negate the other prophecies that clearly fail? God tells us in Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22, that a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. It goes on to say, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. So do not be alarmed. This is a one-strike-and-you're-out test, which William Branham applied to himself. If we can find one failed prophecy, just one, we don't have to look any farther. There are a number of visions which William Branham made which failed. The municipal bridge vision failed, as did the brown bear vision, and the vision of the meetings in South Africa. As a result, we can state without hesitation that you should not pay attention to William Branham. The important question is this. Does Kamala Harris being elected as vice president and wearing purple at her inauguration mean that William Branham is everything that message followers say he is? The answer is no, it doesn't. We are still left with the myriad failed visions and after-the-fact prophecies that William Branham made. We are faced with sermons that William Branham says he received from God, but were clearly plagiarized. We are confronted with an astounding lack of credibility. None of that has changed. I am certainly willing to admit that William Branham stated in an 87-year-old prophecy that a woman might be vice president. He got that right. But that is not an astounding prophecy. That she would wear purple is a bit better, but appears he was merely trying to make reference to Revelation 17.4. I could prophesy today that a woman in the future will be president, and that this future president 
will wear scarlet at some time. That prophecy will come true at some time in the future, but that doesn't make me a prophet. I simply understand that some things are inevitable. However, message followers will, will point to this prophecy and will believe the message more fervently, just as the psychologists predicted. Now, now that's sad, but not something that can be discussed rationally with message followers. Message preachers will continue to fill their congregations with fear, something that the Bible says is the opposite of a real relationship with God. Again, this is regretful. We understand from Romans 8.15 that we did not receive a spirit that makes us fear. No, we received God's spirit when he adopted us as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. That is what being a Christ follower is about. Message followers now believe that the destruction of the United States will happen shortly. As a result, some message followers will sell their houses and spend their life savings, just as happened prior to 1977. I predict, but do not prophesy, that we will see, see a repeat of what happened in 1977. Eventually, some people will wake up and leave the message, while others will still not be able to leave when faced with another failed prophecy. We will continue to let people know about what the Bible really says, that God loves us unconditionally. We will continue to tell them that God has called us to a life of love and not of fear. The spiritual who are still in the message will leave, and the fearful in the message will have to face the consequences of Revelation 21.8. I hope that helps you understand how to deal with this so-called prophecy of William Branham. In early August of 2020, Emily Arndt, Tim Krause, and I had the privilege of interviewing Alicia Moreno, a young lady who spent the first 20 plus years of her life in the Seven Thunders movement, a subsect within the message. Those who are part of this movement refer to it as the Seven Thunders inspiration, although, as you will hear further in this podcast, the inspiration was definitely not from God. There are still people who follow Joseph Coleman, the man who started the Seven Thunders movement. This is part two of our interview with Alicia Moreno. Recently, um, I've started writing more about my experiences. And in order to do that, I've also been doing more research. And there, um, there's actually an, an abundance of Joseph Coleman's uh, sermons available on YouTube. So I've kind of been skipping through them recently. And one of them that I was skipping through just this morning, um, he was talking about Joshua and how Joshua was the only one who spoke with the angel prior to the fall of Jericho. So he had likened himself to Joshua and he was saying, you know, Joshua, Joshua told everybody, when you shout, shout, you know, blow the trumpet seven times, you blow them seven times. The people did what Joshua told them. And so he said the same thing about himself. He said, I could tell them anything and they believe it. Wow. 
And you know that that's interesting. It fits sort of in we gosh, I, I want to say a year ago this last March, 15, 16 months ago now, uh, Joseph Branham came to the Branham Tabernacle and had a and was introducing a tape that they were listening to in the Branham Tabernacle. And he essentially told his assembly that it didn't matter if William Branham lied. It didn't matter that William Branham made mistakes. It didn't matter that that these things occurred because because they knew that William Branham was the prophet of God. And and his essential his essential theme was uh, he repeated William Branham's revelation uh, or alleged revelation that if if they if that what God told William Branham was if you get the people to believe you. What's interesting about that is that he didn't say if you're if you get people to believe the word of God or if you get people to believe scripture or if you get people to believe sound doctrine. Right. He said, if you get the people to believe you, it sounds to me like uh, Joseph Coleman had kind of the same view of himself. Mm-hmm. Essentially, uh, you know, it, I can tell them anything and they're going to believe what I tell them because mm-hmm. I am because I am Joshua, because I am this the archetype of Joshua. Yeah, he would tell us all the time from the pulpit. He'd be like, God didn't tell you this. God told me this. So, how you know, how do you know? God wow. is the one speaking to me, telling me this. And it's my responsibility to communicate it to you. So you you're really looking at him as your lifeline as your intermediary between god and and you you depend on him basically for your salvation wow wow so that's an interesting take now you you talked about him having a stroke in the pulpit he became sick over time and his he his son in law essentially took over for him while he was sick. Is that is that correct? Yes. And so how um, did how did that work? What happened there? <laughs> uh, so again, this was in the early two thousands, between like two thousand three, two thousand five. Um, he had a major um, spinal surgery, and he was recovering for a very long time. And so his son in law was the associate pastor at the time. Um, We had also just had a new church constructed in New York. I mean, it was over a million dollars, this project. It was huge. And uh, his son-in-law really wanted to create more of an organized church. Um, So he created what he called Dedicated Youth for Christ within our church group. And... Everybody in the youth group actually had to start paying monthly membership dues. So it was feeling very corporate. Uh, it was very much like this business model. And um, at one point, a few deacons and their wives um, were, were in a deacon's home. And they just started expressing to each other that they did not feel confident with the way things were moving forward. They questioned the handling of funds. They questioned this really sort of regimented uh, organization. And they really started to question whether Joseph Coleman was losing control over his church and, and you know, really believed that his son-in-law was taking over. 
And again, Coleman found out about this, had a fit. All of these deacons had to, again, repent in front of the congregation for having any doubt in Coleman's control of the church. Uh, and then, just a few months after that, his son-in-law's preaching started to get a bit off doctrine. And... Um, he, I mean, he was basically excommunicated at that point. You know, he, he left, he started his own church. Um, his wife, Coleman's daughter stayed in her father's church, but he went off, he did his own thing. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, wow. uh, tense times. <laughs> wow. Now we, Rod and I came from a church that split as a result of, gosh, I had left the assembly far sooner than this, but Rod experienced as an example the split of a church. That must have been incredibly traumatic for the people that were there. Did his son-in-law take members of Coleman's assembly with him? Really not many. So the, the main thing that was that he was sort of... Um, going off doctrine with was the idea that um, Michael, a lot of times referred to Jesus Christ as the Archangel Michael, rather than talking about Jesus. Wow. I think we, I think we called him Michael more than we ever said Jesus. Um, and so, you know, Coleman said, would, was always saying, you know, Michael is here, Michael is here for deliverance. And, you know, it was, it was that idea that, um, you know, God was in the church now doing, doing his work. Um, and his son-in-law started preaching, he's coming. He's not here, but he's coming. Uh-oh. So that was the well, issue. And of, of course, Michael the Archangel being Jesus is a Jehovah's Witness doctrine. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which Branham adopted. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it's this bizarre, bizarre stuff. Wow. Right. So as far as him taking people with him, I mean, who, who wants to go with the guy who says that God isn't here in the church? You're, you want to be wherever <laughs> God is. <laughs> yeah. No, he, he didn't have too many followers. So you talk about the son-in-law going off doctrine, and we've talked a little bit about the inspiration and the Seven Thunders movement. So what were some of the other distinctives uh, of the inspiration from a doctrinal perspective? I mean, that's a really good question. Everything was so esoteric. And again, it was just constantly about the thunders and and what they were um so something that we heard frequently was the seven thunders are the seven voices of the seven church ages um the seven thunders were the seven virtues um uh stature of a perfect man um and so basically we were constantly striving for perfection that we would um, that we would manifest these seven virtues to be capped off by the Holy Spirit, and we would become um, as 
as Coleman put it, and I'm not sure if this is if Branham ever said this either, but Messiah Etz, little. Oh, yeah, Messiah. No, that's definitely a Branham deal. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, but again, there was always. It was always so esoteric, uh, really just nonsensical. It, it was nonsensical. But what you're taught is that you don't have to understand it. You just have to believe it and say amen. So it doesn't matter if you don't know what it is you believe. As long as you believe it, <laughs> you're set. Yeah, only believe. Yeah. Wow. And that's well, yeah, this is, this very is what common. you get yeah, from a doctrinal perspective. You say, well, you, what is the revelation? Well, this is what it is. Well, I don't get that. Right. Well, then you just don't have it. You just don't have it's, it. It's, it's this esoteric, you've got to, and if, if, if you don't get this flash in the middle of the night or this mm -hmm. revelation, then somehow you don't have it. And, mm -hmm. and there are all flavors of that in different, the different subsects of the message have well, they're different take on that. Right. And we were always rebuked for trying to use our intellect to understand it because you could never understand it rationally. It had to be <laughs> a revelation. Well, this is one of the interesting things about the message because they're, they're anti-intellectual. They don't want to use, your, to use your brain, whereas God created you with a brain and honestly, the brain is probably the most complex thing in the universe that we are aware of. So if you look at all through the universe, say, what's the most complex thing that we're aware of as humans? What's the human brain? There's nothing more complicated, but you don't use it, right? Because well, the brain is the battleground, Rod. <laughs> well, yeah, it's telling you don't think, which is not what we're born to do, right? We actually are supposed to think. And in Isaiah, you read, come, let us reason together. Oh, no, we don't want to do that. Yeah, but God's telling us to reason. No, no, but you're not supposed to. It's, it's, very, it's very strange <laughs> to understand. So, Alicia, I did a little bit of research and was looking around on Seven Thunders. And this is something I'd heard at one point in time. But I got onto the FBI's website. And, <laughs> and Aaron Riddle, who I assume went to Coleman's church, Mm -hmm. um, Joseph Jonathan Coleman, who was uh, Joseph Coleman's son, Correct. Timothy Smith, mm -hmm. and Robert Riddle all pled guilty. And there's another guy, Isaac Ovid. Mm -hmm. And there was uh, Logos Multi-Strategy, LP, Jadis Capital. I mean, these guys defrauded approximately $9.3 million in Logos, $3 million in the Donum Fund, uh, most of which I think came from people in the church. Is that correct? That is correct. So give me a little bit of, give us a little bit, our listeners, a little bit of background on how this thing unraveled, how it started, how it unraveled, and, and some of these guys ended up in jail. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it really started out. It was um, so Coleman always said that he never backed it, but he, when they were starting out, he he prayed over their venture that it would be successful. But he always it was over the pulpit. Oh yes, yeah. But he always maintained that he never backed it. He he just 
prayed. But it was really um, a collaborative effort among many of the uh, officers of the church. They were youth ministers, they were song leaders, they were deacons, and an elder. And they, you know, they targeted the, the congregation and, you know, promised great returns on their investments. And, you know, they, they were younger, younger people at the time, 30s, 40s. And so many of the parishioners had known these young men from the time they were born, or at least very young children. These, these were their church officers that they had known their whole lives. Why wouldn't you trust them? Um, and then, you know, it was revealed that they were embezzling the money. Um, Isaac Ovid, who was one of our youth ministers, bought himself a Bentley. And they <laughs> nice. Were, nice. Yeah. <laughs> they were traveling. They were buying expensive watches and, um, you know, kind of living the high life off of the congregation's money. And um, even, you know, once they were indicted, the, the FBI, um, they approached many of the people who were, you know, who were defrauded and asked them to testify. And they would not testify because after the whole situation, you know, Coleman was really emphasizing forgiveness and the congregation didn't want more negative attention brought on the church. So they refused to testify. Um, but yes, four of them ended up in prison and two of them were under house arrest for a time. And for our listeners, I will post a couple links to uh, to the FBI website. And there's some other articles as well. So if people are interested in reading some of the details on this, I will post them on the website so that uh, people can find them and uh, watch it if you're curious. Yeah, if you just Google local Christian assembly Ponzi scheme, you will find a lot of articles about it. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, I have to tell you that from my personal experience, song leaders are a bit shady anyway. You got to really, <laughs> you got to watch them. I'm telling you, it's unbelievable. But I, I, now I'm going to ask you, you, obviously there's things happening around you that, that were obviously inconsistent with what you would consider to be baseline Christianity, or at least or at least that would have come to my mind is that some of these things were out of the opportunity to be baseline Christianity at what point and how old were you when you figured out, gee, you know, this may be a cult. <laughs> um, honestly, I was 22. It was after I had already left and, um, Again, I know we're going to get into this particular part of the story, but um, after the the worst craziness went down, I was kind of decompressing with a friend who had also left. Um, and she said that at one point, 
she was in a church service and she had the thought if i am asked right now to drink kool-aid would i do it and when she shared that with me it, it just really really struck me that that's the path we were heading down that something that extreme was not really totally out of the realm of possibility. And so that was the first time that I remember thinking that it was a cult. And then from that point, I, I wanted to confirm it. I was like, I, I have to find out if this is for real. Like, sure, did I sure. really grow up in a cult? Sure. And my husband and I just watched every cult documentary that we could find on Amazon and Netflix and Hulu. And I started reading people's memoirs. And there were so many um, characteristics and, and criteria that I could point to and say, yes, that's exactly what I experienced. That's exactly what it was like. And, uh, and I remember watching the documentary called Holy Hell, and I had a panic attack at the end of it. I like I was just totally out of control, like so triggered by that. And wow. j just because I think that was the moment that it that I really accepted it, that yes, I, I did grow up in a cult and it was not normal. And there's definitely trauma here that I'm going to have to deal with now, you know, because at first it was, it was almost interesting and, and thrilling, like, wow, you know, I, I really did have this crazy experience, but I think that that moment after watching Holy Hell, um, it was the moment that I realized that not only was it true, but that I was actually damaged from it and that I would have to start to recover from it. Wow. That was a realization. Now, have you done any counseling? Have you, have you? <laughs> you know what? I haven't. Um, and it's always one of those things that I, I, I mean, I probably think every other day, you know, I, I really should, should get therapy. <laughs> I still haven't done it. It's been eight years. Wow. Well, I can highly, highly recommend therapy. I waited uh, probably about 13 years too many before I got uh, professional counseling and trauma therapy and was diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, for, for you know, I think sometimes we think, oh, maybe what we, you know, you're talking about drinking the Kool-Aid and obviously that's a reference to Jim Jones. Well, we weren't as bad as them or we're not as bad as David Koresh down in Waco. You know, we're not really that cult-like. So I think sometimes a lot of people are, you know, I think we kind of think, well, we weren't that bad, but I think, you know, having a professional is, and and this is speaking more to our listeners um, out there. If you're considering that, I highly recommend uh, finding a professional counselor. Well, and what most people don't understand is that Jim Jones got his start through the blessing of William Branham. 
So Jim Jones invited William Branham and a few other people several times. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting that it appears that Voice of God has, has put some, I would say, strategically located blank on the tape, E-E-D, right, editor. And so in that, it's quite disturbing when I found out that Jim Jones and William Branham knew each other. And in fact, Jim Jones referred to his own movement as the message. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's my understanding also that um, in the aftermath of Waco, some of William Branham's books were discovered because David Koresh was writing his manifesto on the Seven Seals and who spoke on the Seven Seals. So he had he had basically been doing research um, and he had Branham's books. We're going to end the podcast there as we try to keep our episodes to around 30 minutes. We invite you to join us next month for part three of our discussion with Alicia Moreno. If you have a question about the podcast or comments as to how we could improve it, please feel free to go to our website at offtheshelf.life. There's a comment section at the bottom of every episode's webpage, or you're welcome to send me an email at rod, R-O-D, at offtheshelf.life. Always remember, God is not afraid of your questions. Thanks for listening. Is in the thorn tree. The virgins are all trimming their wicks. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In measured a hundredweight and penny pound. When the man comes around. And his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him.